out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love our special guests. Let's face facts. I'm obsessed. This week, it's going to be the turn of Henry Priestman. Yes, that Henry Priestman. There is only one broccoli. Um, who was in such bands as The Yachts, It's Immaterial, The Christians, and lots, lots more, including a uh, turn helping to produce an album by the one and only Mark Owen. We talk about all that and so much more. Anyway, this is the interview. After several minutes of casual chat, it's showbiz, really. Um, we got down to that exciting subject that were the early formative years. Henry, you've got to just tell us all about it. It's over to you. Um, well, exactly. So I'm 10 years older than you. I'm 65. I'm a pensioner now. Um, and uh, so I was... Oh, do I remember? I'm always the beat for me. 63, 62, 63, I was uh, eight, and the Beatles came on, and I just thought, and the Kinks and the Stones, and you know, the Four Tops and all this, and I was, I was just, I just loved it. Every all my, you know, uh, probably at the age of, t- I, I funny because I just found out somebody put on Facebook. Oh no, I'm reading the the um, the uh, the new Beatles book. And I didn't think there could possibly be another Beatles book that I'd be interested in because they're just being done to death. You know, I've got the Philip Norman one and I've got the um, Revolution in the Head, is it? Which is yes. the one that's a different. Yeah, I've got that one. I thought, do I need to know? There's one called One, Two, Three, Four, which I don't know how long it's been out, but I got given that for my birthday. And I thought, you know, you get things. And I think, yeah, thanks. And actually, it's, it's, it's just different, done from a different angle. A little sort of, it's taken through there, through the you know the the years and it's going on to little intricate things like and the fact that, that somebody mentioned that uh they saw cliff richard uh they're talking about the slight on animosity between cliff richard and the beatles and they saw cliff richard in panto at the london palladium with uh terry scott and hugh lloyd as the ugly sisters and i went i was at that i went to see my friends uh, we went down to london and for me i think it was the first time i'd ever been to london and i saw so that will have been my first but it wasn't really a gig it wasn't really a gig was it? you can't really so that was 1966 right. but the first first so I, I loved all this the first um first record i asked for was johnny and the hurricanes now you won't know it's called Beatnik Fly, but it had that and it had cheesy organ, all of which have been what have got me through the last um, forty years in pop. It's cheesy organ, twang, you know, tremolo. It had all that stuff, and I thought, oh, I love this. So that I must have. So that I think it came out in '59 or '61. I probably got it. I think my cousin had it, and I thought, oh, I want this. I want this. So that I asked for that, and I probably asked for "From Me to You" by the Beatles, and uh, possibly because somebody asked weird this week. Somebody else has asked me to do a thing. The first record I ever bought. I think the first record I ever paid for. You know, saved up for. Because when you were eight, you got eight pence pocket money. When you were nine, you got nine pence pocket money. Tell the kids today, hey, they go out and buy a bloody Gibson Les Paul week yes. one. But um, so that's what. So you saved up your pocket money, and uh, and I think I bought She Loves You. It's either that or um, what's the other thing? I could see my friends, but that would have, might have been a bit later. So 
It's either See My Friends or She Loves You, basically, were the first records I bought. Yes. Uh, and then the first album I bought was, I think, oh, it'll have been one of those Marble Arch Kinks ones, I think. Right. Well respected Kinks. Yeah. Because they were only 13 and 6. Do you, remember, do you remember non-digit, uh, non, uh, you know, do you remember non-metric? Yeah, uh, well, I, I was yeah. at that age where it was almost like, my God, I'm going to have to learn this. And, and sort of being taught yeah. when I was very young, because I was born in 64. And then I have no idea, you know, someone would explain about how many pennies make a shilling and how many shillings. Oh, it was and bonkers. It was absolutely like, and then suddenly it was like decimalization. It's like, right, you don't need to worry. Because at the time when you're, when you're young, there's certain major things that you learn in like riding a bike or tying your shoelace up or turning the clock, uh, telling the time. You know, it was like a big thing, like, tell us what the time is. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah. You get a bit panicky, don't you? And, and just yes, yeah. and strange little things that were, you know, they're kind of ensconced in my brain, I suppose. That kind of like. Well, I, I could never work out what, because LPs were, I think, 39 and 11. And that was such a complicated sum for me. What would you mean, 39 and 11? Well, I suppose yeah. 40 shillings would be, I can't even work it out now because I failed my maths. And, yeah, well, it was yeah. a weird, but my first musical moment, because, you know, again, you sort of die in one's memory, but one of it, I suppose, because my parents, my dad, I suppose with that, you know, they were both very young in the war time. And when they got married in the 50s, I think they just literally like a work, any working class family or couple just had to sell everything. So his record player and his Elvis records all went. So we didn't really get a record player again until the early 70s. And um, so we, when we watched telly, I do remember being very excited by Step Inside Love by... Uh, uh, You're right. Scylla. Scylla Black. And that yeah. was something really dramatic. Only, re not recently, but the last decade that I really, you know, when I went back on Spotify, probably that horrendous thing, but it's quite useful, isn't it, Spotify? I sort of realised it was written by McCartney and Lennon. Yeah, yes, it was, like, yes. Oh. I think more I think more McCartney, possibly, than, than Lennon, but yeah. Right, and... Um, um, and then there was that kind of, you know, because it was Radio 2 with Jimmy Young in the afternoon and what's the recipe today? And there was things like, you know, the <laughs> back rack, sort of easy listening music, wasn't it? And I think, yes. and I loved, you know, the Carpenters and I still do. And I can see the join between the Carpenters, Burt Backrack, and then Joy Division and the Smiths. You know, it's like, yeah, that's just absolutely well, They're all in my record collection. You know, they're all here. <laughs> they're all here somewhere. Well, even more in my vinyl collection. This is, yes. this is the CD collection, which has been, I've got rid of, I think, uh, possibly between 500 and 700 CDs in the last year, because I thought, I'm not really buying them anymore. I'm, I'm concentrating on vinyl. So the ones that have stayed, I mean, what's that? Well, the big one, you can see the kinks from there. Can, you can make that out maybe. I'm possibly not in this life, but anyway, few the ones the ones I actually bought myself, I've kept a lot of the ones I kept. And all the freebies I got from being at Island Records or Stiff or Radar or whatever, have, they've gone, you know. They've gone. So, because you're a little bit older than my old brother, who was born in 57, I think. And, and so he's seven years older than me. He had a huge influence on my life because during the 70s, that was his period when, you know, you're 16, 18 and music is so big. And he was really into the prog rock thing. And he had the, you know, the Black Sabbath album and Deep Purple. But he also had two other albums, which I played when he wasn't in his room, which was Sergeant Pepper a lot. And also Goodbye Yellow Brick Road as well, which... You know, at the time, you know, I didn't realize when you look at it, you think, God, the Beatles had just broken up, hadn't they? You know, and that was yeah. a, and, and sort of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was still a new album. 
and um, yes, side four, there was some stunning songs. So, so what was your kind of period of the seventies of sort of playing music and sort of? Uh, what? Where, where do we start? What? What? What year? Well, I suppose if you were sort of young in the sixties, and you obviously, but when you got to those kind of period of sort of when you were fourteen, fifteen, when yeah. you start sort of thinking, actually, you started to get a musical instrument or started sort of singing. Yeah, I, I, uh, well, I got a guitar, but I couldn't really play when I was about, no, actually, sorry, I got drunk at first because uh, my brother had a snare drum. And then for, I think for my 11th birthday, as, as a, is it, it used to be my Facebook uh, profile picture, which is me aged 11 on the drum kit with my brother playing a, a great looking guitar and my mate John Lewis on bass. No, he's not even on bass, he's on two guitars because you couldn't afford that. You know, you just played guitar then. Yes. And yeah. um, so I started on drums. And then when I got to about 14, I just, I learned um, the riff to satisfaction. And I learned, um, um, what's it called? Rufus Thomas. Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. It's totally gone out of my mind now. But it was, um, Baby's dressed in black, the buckles are down her back. She going the missing walking the dog. I had to, I got there eventually. Walking the dog. The when you get to my age, it all goes. There's two as somebody said that the hard drive is too full at the moment. Yes. Walking the dog, that was one of the first ones I learned, which was of course I probably learned the Rolling Stones version of it. Yes. Um yes. so I was learning guitar. I was posing same thing, I got into prog. I got well, I got into uh, John Mayall, the blues, you know, and it was called actually underground and then it sort of became progressive and so yeah there was all the sort of thing you know there was the groundhogs um uh, king crims and uh, van de graaff generator yes the whole lot all that lot you know i got into all that well deep into that lot and that was probably when i was about so probably so yes 15 16 Right. Really loved it. Absolutely loved it. Still love it. Still love it from that era. But I can't listen to anything post seventy six, which is so that was the year zero. You know, that's when it all stopped, and you 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 hid you hid your Mahavishnu orchestra albums <laughs> under the bed just for a few years until Massive Attack started sampling them. Then you go, I've got the original where that hey 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 came from. You know, it's weird the whole sort of thing of trying to. Trying to appease your mates and not looking uncool, and now I just go, "Hey, I've got all the Yes albums up to relay, and I still love them." Yes, well, my brother even had the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which I found fascinating. You know, King Arthur. Well, I I can tell you, this is how weird is this. <laughs> so I've gone back and getting uh, some of those albums either because we didn't you didn't have money to buy albums then, and now I've got a bit of spare money, uh, and so I'm going and you know going on Discogs and going, oh. Seven quid for six wives of Henry Day. Oh, go on, I'm going to have a listen because I've not listened to it since 1973 when a mate had it and I had it on a, a reel to reel. I used to have a reel to reel and at half speed you could get about 12 albums on and it probably must have sounded shit because it was probably recorded with a little microphone, you know what? And, but I loved it and mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I, if somebody said, well, as a songwriter, for me, um, it's all my songs are about everything I've listened to throughout my life. You know, it's all it, it's in there. I'm not nicking things, but it's all in there. And all these, you know, it might be a, a riff or a drum rhythm or a bass line or just something you go, oh, you know, um, I think that first song I ever, well, third song I wrote, which was 
I was in a band called Yachts, and we were on Stiff, and uh, it's called Suffice to Say, and I wrote the lyric about uh, the girl I was going out with at the time. This is 1977, and she's in the next room, which is quite lovely. That's a that's a sort of ah type story. Yeah, so yeah. we're still together, and um, but the actual chords are I nicked off Frank Zappa. And the the idea, not not the lyrics, but the idea. Uh, I don't know if you well, you know Robert Wyatt. Yeah. Do you know Matching Mole? No. Matching Mole is the 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 band he formed after Soft Machine. Right. And there's a song on that album where he goes, "It's all about a song about us. It's a song about a song." And he goes, "And this is the first verse, and this is the first verse, and this is the first. and he goes on like that, and you're going. You can't write a song like that. And this is the chorus. And at the end of what I think, one point he goes, or perhaps it's a bridge. Or, and, and I just thought, that is brilliant to write a song. So this song, I wrote this song, Suffice to Say by Yachts, um, is all is a song about a song, you know. I, I, and he mentioned, I never wrote a middle eight, so we'll just have to do without. But there's an instrumental break just after this. And it's, it's a song about a song, because I'm not an angsty sort of... Uh, Oh, woe is me. You know, I, I, I've i always wanted to, I always love lyrics with a bit of wryness and a bit of a story and a bit of, I don't know, not your normal lyric. Hence, I suppose, me liking things like Ray Davis and, I don't know, Bell and Sebastian and Robert Wyatt and things like yes. that. Yeah. Well, I always remember, you know, getting slightly jumping forward to the 80s, hearing the track he did was called Pigs. You remember Pigs? Robert Wyatt doing this song called Pigs? Yes, yes. And that was like so unusual. You're just thinking, this is a bit weird, isn't it? It just goes on. There's Pigs in there. You know, yeah, I know. I know. Again, it's that people just slightly think outside the box and do something a bit different. And that always, you know, Frank Zappa, you know, well, he got to, it, it, it checked when he was in The Mothers, he was fantastic. And it, then he got a bit too silly, you know. But Yes. So when you were, you know, of uh, the 70s, then you go to art school in Liverpool, don't you? Yes, well, I started in Hull because that's where I'm from. Right. Uh, I was in at Hull in Foundation and we formed a band uh, uh, with uh, and the drummer was, was Brad from the specials, John Bradbury. Because the next time I saw him, so this was 75, the next time I saw him, he was on top of the pops. And we went, Bloody, that's Brad from he was, he was in our band, <laughs> and we did things like um. Uh, Black Magic Woman, and we did uh, Lou Reed, uh, not Pale Blue Eyes, uh, standing on the corner, sleep in my head. Oh, I'm, I'm getting crap at remembering lyrics. Hang on, where is it? <laughs> Sweet Jane, Sweet Jane, my brain's going. Yes. So we did that. That was the, the band at, at Hull Art College where we were supporting uh, Reckless Eric before he became Reckless Eric, when he was known as Alan Addison, the Flip Tops. Flipping and uh, so he, uh, then we moved, yes, then we went to, moved to Liverpool. Well, I went to art college. You got, I've got into Liverpool. If I'd have got into Leeds, which was my first choice, I would have been in the same year as Mark Almond and, and Dave Ball, which would have been interesting. Yeah. I could, it could have been totally different. God, it would have been. But then you had Liverpool, which had the death, Death School, this band called Death School. Oh, amazing. And Death then, School, yeah. And then you had Eric's as well. And then you had this whole scene of, uh, of uh, Big in Japan. So did you, were, did you sort of become part of that scene? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Deaf School, they were at the Art College Band. They were in the third year when we were in the first year. Right. And, and it was Clive Langer from Deaf School who said to us, we were in a band, this, this ramshackle, ramshackle, typical art college band called Albert Dock and the Cod Warriors. And, uh, you know, very art college. And it was eight of us in it, of which probably seven of us, including me, couldn't play, you know, but it, it was, we had a lot of charm and we ended up sporting the Sex Pistols when they played at Eric's, which is uh, was our claim to fame. And um, then we decided to take it, a, well, it was while we were in Albert Dock, Clive Langer, so they were very helpful, Deaf School, so helped, they lent us all their gear and gave us tips. And Clive Langer said to me, why don't you write your own songs? And it's like, oh, how do you do that? You know, but... We, I owe him. Um, I, owe, <laughs> I owe him my career, basically, yes. for, for, for suggesting that. Because I think we were just. So what we were doing, covering, well, and in early yachts, we were covering uh, songs like mid '60s psych and uh, garage band, like Nuggets. Are you aware of Nuggets? Yes. So all the Sonics yeah. and yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We loved all that, and and even more obscure, the ones that weren't on. Uh, Nuggets. I mean, I love Nuggets, but obviously you couldn't cover those because they were too well known. So we'd go to this um, place in Manchester, this record shop called Yanks, where there'd be all these remaindered albums, so the ones with the little cutouts in the corner, and they'd be going for nineteen p. And oh, you just nice. look at a, you go to a, you'd look at a cover and you go, that's dreadful. It's it's going to be fantastic. Look at what <laughs> they're wearing. Look at the titles of the. So that's where we found the very first. Uh, well, no, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the early yacht singers. It's called Look Back in Love, Not in Anger. Not in Anger in brackets. I think yes. it's the brackets which sold it. And we just thought, this is fantastic. It's going to be great. And, and we, yes, we got a single out of that. That going, you know, that became a single for us. So we were into all this sort of, um, that's what we were trying to do. I mean, it ends, ends up being nothing like, you know, what you aim at. Um, we were aiming to be like that. And it probably came a bit more rocky, especially when we went to enter the States. And uh, we're initially we were produced by Clive Langer. And I do wonder what it would have been like if he'd done the, the whole album, because I, I did I did love what he did with us. He did two singles with us. And then we went to um, the States to do the album, which I, I can't knock because it, it got us over to the States. And, you know, we were... We, we toured the States twice and it was great fun, really good fun. And we were working with Richard yeah. Gotter, who who, who uh, wrote Hang On Sloopy and My Boyfriend's Back. So for me, being a musical nerd of pop from all eight, I was like, oh, wow. And he produced the first Blondie album. So I thought, yeah, he's the man for us. Jeezy crazy. Which one was that? Because the, the first Blondie album, because Parallel Lines is the third one, isn't it? Jeez. Yes, exactly. No, he did the first. I had the first. It was on private stock and it things like Ex Offender and um, Ripper and, to Shreds. And Contact in Red Square, probably, or something like yes. that. Yes, yes, I think that's on there. And my, I sec had my second single was the Blondie's um, Denis Denis. And that the B-side was quite interesting because it had... Um, yeah, contact in Red Square, and I can't remember what the, they, you know, a lot of B sides had two singles, and actually they were quite good. So it was, yeah, yeah, it was quite an unusual kind of like, oh, it's very interesting, contact in Red Square. So yeah, so <laughs> Clive Langham, who went on to do that, um, was it '83 when he did a, a track? Uh, was it Punch the Clock with Elvis Costello? Was that that album? Or no, he, Goodbye Cruel World, didn't he? Oh, did he? Oh, I don't know. He might have done. I know he, he of course, did. He co-wrote uh, Shipbuilding, which brings us back to Wyatt, with Elvis Costello, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure which one. He, he might well have 
yeah, he could well have. I mean, he's produced so many, all the Madness stuff. He produced uh, the Dexys, you know, the really successful Dexys stuff. Um, he kind of took, took over from Mickey most, didn't he, really? as the sort of go-to producer, didn't he? He was a bit, yes, but cooler. Mickey, <laughs> I, I suppose Mickey most was cool. Because he had that kind of period, didn't he, where it was great, and then suddenly you just... He just disappears completely. No one's, but then sort of you get this other, you know, producer, and then you're in the sort of 80s, you got the mainstream sound with people like Trevor Horn. So you get these kind of name producers for a while, don't you? You're right. Yes. You know what I was thinking the other day? People like Swain and Jolly. Do you remember them? They they just did everything. They might have done Banana Rob, but they did all the. But you know, you're right. All the Chinny Chap in the 70s, you know, the Sweet and Mud. You're right. They they last for a certain amount of time, don't they? And then they, who who's the cool one now? I wouldn't know, and I doubt if you do. No, I mean it'd be no. some, some grime, grime. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, we but wouldn't then, know. We would be so out of touch, wouldn't we? But yeah, one of those kind of, you know, because again, you know, doing this show, there was, you know, like names come up. They were, oh yeah, we worked with this person who was like Stephen Street. Suddenly it was like, God, Stephen Street, Jesus. He was like, you know, his CV is like, bloody hell, you just, yeah. You know, it was just everything he touched was gold, wasn't it? You know, they, there was that. Yes, exactly. Somebody, yeah. Glenn Johns as well, and, and sort of, you know, Steve Elby. He nearly, Glenn Johns nearly did the second Christians album, actually. He came up and we met him, and then we went down to his studio at this amazing rambling house in, somewhere in Surrey or something like that. And from what I can remember, he had one of those mixing desks that was so old that they came, you know the old pictures of the Beatles where they're, the, the faders go down rather than up. Yeah. I seem to remember that. He had one of those. And also what I was amazing, because I'd sung some of the demos, and he went, I really like your voice. And I went, no, 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 I'm not. They're just the demos. Gary Christian sings the songs. I don't, I don't sing them. You know, but, it, it, you know, 20 years later, I am singing now, which is, which is great. Yes, he saw, he saw it. <laughs> he he forced he saw the talent. So with the yachts, because you had sort of quite an amazing lineup, didn't you, in, in that band? So you must have got quite a vibe quite quickly. And you, you said earlier that you, you didn't, you know, not many people were musicians, but obviously you must have started to find something quite incredible quite quickly. Uh, yeah, I mean, we weren't playing particularly complicated stuff. I think that's it. I suppose we, we started Albert Docking probably at some point in 70, early 76. So by the middle of 77, we'd probably have been playing a year and we, you know, and, and the thing is, if, you, if you're half decent, you know, we were only playing four chords. I still only play four chords. That's all you need yes. with the occasional A minor thrown in. But we, so we, I suppose we got good at what we did. It, we had a sound because I'd picked up an old Farfisa organ of somebody. And um, yeah, we, 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 we were so lucky. We, we changed our name. So I mentioned Albert Dock before, that was our first band. And then we changed our name to Yachts and we slimmed down to just a five piece. And that was in May 77. And um, by in August 77, we supported Elvis Costello at Eric's. And luckily, Stiff Records were there, saw us, took us down to London to support him at a residency. He did a month's residency. We supported on the first one and the last one and when we walked out the gig at the last one they said right do you want to do a single you just think that's from may till august it was crazy you know it's another of those sort of um what's it um, sliding doors moment if, if stiff records hadn't have been there at that gig 
I probably wouldn't be speaking to you now. You know what I mean? It's all it's all luck. It's all yes. luck. And well, well, a yeah. lot of people talk about timing because I did. You know, Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness said that yeah, yeah. He, he was two years too early for punk. You know, he was like punk, but he hadn't quite caught up with him. Yes. So all the people in the audience were like, right, that's what we're going to do. And in fact, 18 months time, we're all going to be big and, you know, like, and be major players. And he was like, shit, I'll be 25 and I'll be a bit, you know, a bit jaded. I've lost the sort of the moment. So it was like, Well, that's interesting. You should say that because the same sort of thing with Deaf School. They were so influential uh it was more sort of roxy-ish i suppose and you know but it was just something different there you know i arrived at art college with hair down here and flares on you know this was 1975 <coughs> and i saw deaf school and it's so theatrical so inventive so it was just amazing as i thought this is fantastic this is what i want to do you know uh but their second album i think was released in probably 77 maybe it could have been 76, but they'd been influenced by punk and it didn't quite work. You know, it's probably very similar to what you're saying with Docs of Madness, because we all, all the bands were watching Death School when they first started and going, this is different. And, you know, and, you know, same with Doctor Doctors of Madness. It isn't exactly punk, but it's got all the things like Death School weren't exactly punk, but they had something different, you know. Yes. All us... Because there was, those, there was those bands who were just about obviously being sort of around, especially in America, you know, seeing, you know, like Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, that, set, that West Coast rock, and must have thought, right, we're ready, we're going to do it now. And there was one band, I mean, there was people like Niels Lofgren, who I like his solo stuff, but you can see there was like, it just must have been like, what the hell's this? You know, punk, you know, punk is happening, you give me this yeah. album. And there was another band called Clover who had Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah. A bit like their look was just like bad, but they they were actually the band who were on Elvis', Elvis. Elvis Trust album, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah. It's kind of funny because no one knows who Clover is, but you know Elvis was obviously oh yeah, you guys. But by the way, you know you're tough. I don't know what I was yeah because they they did the they did it um, in Pathway Studio, the first Costello album, which is where that was the first ever studio we went into, and it was this tiny little thing. You're thinking, how did they all fit in here? Uh, I do wonder what Huey Lewis did at that. Was he not? Did he? Was he a player? I don't know. That's always that would be the first question I would be asking. Look, yeah. hey, you were all Clover. What did Huey do when he played? You know, on yeah. he, they played on Allison, didn't they, and things like that. How, how weird is that? Because today I'm compiling a list because I, I swap, I'm swapping a lot of vinyl with stuff. I'm thinking, will I ever listen to this again? Possibly not. And today. Um, my mate said, well, look, just let me know what you're after. And today I literally put the first Costello album down because I got rid of it in the, the ill-advised cull of 2010. And I'm now trying to get back some of the ones I got rid of. That was unfortunate, wasn't it? That was Because <laughs> Jane Casey, you know, going back to the Liverpool scene, I remember some yeah. of his documentaries and there was people like Bill Drummond and, and obviously David Baff and Julian Cope and uh, and it was kind of incredible but I remember with that big in Japan kind of gang I remember Jane Casey saying we kind of wore our neurosis on stage kind of basically we're all slightly damaged and you know but we we create you know we we were there on stage did you were you also not quite so damaged but did you sort of pick up on that kind of quite crazed creativity that that was part of the Eric scene at the time. Yeah, well, there's a really interesting bit in a book um, that came out last year called a dreadful title, Scousology, but it's, uh, oh, no, it's, it's Scouse Pop, it's called Scouse Pop, uh, but it deals with lo lots of the bands that would go on to be big in the 80s or whatever, 
And they're, talk, they're, they're talking to Ken Testy, who, along with Roger Eagle and Pete Fulwell, started Eric's. And when they started Eric's, they didn't quite know what they were doing because people think it's a punk club, but they, you know, they had like folk on there. They had like Stanley Clark. They had Supercharge. You know, they had, it wasn't just punk, yeah. but it was a, a place where it was just different to other clubs. And I, there's a lovely little bit in there, which I, I was amazed when I read it. And it said how, um, how when they first, first started it, the first three, gigs where I went to all first three was the first one was uh, the Stranglers, second was the Runaways and the third one was the Sex Pistols which we supported that and they um, so apparently when they were starting this club thinking right let's make, let's have a go at doing this club they said right well how are we going to get you know people to it because there wasn't really a punk scene especially in Liverpool there wasn't any sort of scene going on and um, and apparently Ken Testy in his words in this book he said he said to Roger Eagle right well, you know Jane Casey uh, at Aunt Twacky's, which was this closed place, uh, and she's got all her, what do they call acolytes, which would be Holly Johnson, Pete Birds, you know, Pete Bird, and, and all these sort of people. So you go down there and get them to come. And he said, I'll go up to the art college. And in his, in his words, he said, I went up to the art college and the first two people he bumped into were myself and John Campbell, who was yacht singer, who would then go on to be in It's a Material and, yes. and stuff. So it was a mixture. And of course, all the deaf school were at the art college. So, so it was a mixture of all this sort of, all people wanting something different, you know, albeit from maybe different, you know, we were the students, probably looked down on because we were students, but we were art students. So we maybe, we were okay. We were cool. Yes, but CBGBs would be the same because that, you know, the initials for that is something like country, bluegrass, I don't know, what does this stand for? I, I, uh, I used to know it, yes. It's, it's, it's country bluegrass. bluegrass. And I did an interview with the guitarist of television, Richard Lloyd, and it was a bit like, he's like, they didn't want punk, so he said, we'll put you on, on a Sunday night, but make sure you get a crowd. So they just kind of got all their mates to come along on a Sunday. And it was a bit like, and the guy was obviously, ah, okay, forget the country and bluegrass, we've got punk. You know, yeah. so CBGBs didn't start out as this great, cool, you know, punk club. No, exactly. Again, it's like, we are, I mean, I for me, actually, that's the period I probably love the most is that New York scene. I mean, all the Richard Hell television, Ramones, New York doll. I, I love, I've, I've been reading this, uh, is it Please, there's a book called Please Kill Me. Have you read that? Yes. Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's funny because I've got some books which you read and you go, okay, well, that is a keeper. And there's another one called, well, I can't remember, but it, it, it goes through all of New York from the music scene from about 74 through to about 78. And it's fascinating what, what they were all doing, you know, what was Lou Reed doing and what was, you know, what was Patti Smith doing. And, and it's fantastic. But I love that. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's like Eric's times 20. You know what I mean? Because for me, that music means more to me possibly than, what even though I love the people and I love some of the track, but that music is just the television is up. That Marky Moon is in my top three, definitely. Yes, well, it's interesting because because you had just sticking with New York just briefly here, but you had Max's Kansas City, which had the Andy Warhol play there, and then you I would play CBGBs, and and so you need to buy this book when midnight. Go on, right? So it's what's that about all the venues? Well, no, it's a photograph. This guy, Gary Green, yeah. was a young kid who just went and photographed lots of people during that period. 
and he's just brought it out in the last year. And there's a picture he's got of uh, Joe Jackson in here. So, um, and, and so it's basically, he's kind of got his negatives and went, God, look at that. I perhaps I should sort of... Have you read his book? Have you read Richard Hell's book? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, it's, I, think, I think it's on Penguin, of all things. It's called When I Was... Was it When I Was... I can't remember. But it's fantastic. You will love it. Look, your old mate. Oh, yeah, yeah, Joe. Yes, we supported him. Yes, apparently he didn't... A few times. Taken. But, um, yeah, so look. So, God, the yacht. So... I'm still kind of boggled that you you just got together and um, and you toured the US and Europe with Joe Jackson and the Who. That did that feel a little bit like you know, wow, that that's kind of a fast track to to international stardom. <laughs> well, it did because uh, what happened? Uh, the first single came out. Suffice to say, the first single came out. Um, I want to talk about before we signed to Stiff, which was a really cool label at the time. You know. Uh, and then our singer, John Campbell, let's say, who I would then rejoin a few years later in, in It's Material, he decided to leave. And he was so charismatic. He was just, you know, he, he was amazing on stage. And so we suddenly thought, what are we going to do? It was a bit like the Genesis thing. Where we, yes. <laughs> we've, we've lost our singer. What the bloody hell are we going to do? So I did a bit of singing and the guitarist did a bit of singing. Um, but it took us... Wait, after that, after that amazing fast tracking to, you know, great reviews and the enemy. And, the, and we were very, at the time, we were very, you know, it's like, this is something different. We went, we went in black leather. Um, you know, we were, it was, it was, there was a bit of wryness in the lyrics. There was, uh, uh, you know, it's colourful. Um, it was obviously fast. It was taking on all those things from punk. But I suppose I like my, my pop too much. I like my, my, my choruses too much. Um, so we thought, what? So we, it was back to square one. We just toured for a year and gradually built up a following, and uh, and then signed to Radar Records, which of course is where uh, uh, Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello from Stiff. They all so we all went over to Radar at the same time. So that was a that gave us a bit of a you know a bump up. The fact that we suddenly seen on this cool label again. In fact, literally two days ago, I was doing a Zoom thing about uh, from somebody in America who's something like 28, doing a, a Zoom interview about uh, Stiff Records and Radar Records. And I was going, what are you into these? You should be into, you know, grime, as you say, grime or something like that. But he wasn't, bless him. So, yes, we were, we were signed to Radar Records. And uh, first album, as I say, flown out to New York to record it. And, you know, re they really got us in, in America, whereas we weren't cool... After that first single, we were definitely uncool in Britain. We sort of lost it. I think we were maybe too, I don't know, were we too smart-ass, yeah, too clever, yeah. not angst enough, and everything else was very angular and jagged and angry, and we weren't particularly so, angry. So why but they John got us in America. So what did, why did John leave the band if it was looking so good? Because most people leave when it's not really doing much. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think it's because of his girlfriend. I think... Uh, she wasn't happy with him. Um, I could be wrong there, so maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but that's that's the impression we got. It's funny because I've been going through my diaries recently, and it's like John's threatening to leave the band again. You know, so he's leaving the band again. Oh my god! You know, it's like all this. <laughs> and actually, the last gig we did, which was High Wycombe somewhere, it was amazing. And we we all ended up, you know, I still shared a flat with him, and but it was just like 
wow, then what what could have been? But it, I guess so. We got back together again three years later with yes, bits of material, which is quite interesting because most bands from this eighties period that I've interviewed, you know, they have that twelve months getting together, and then you know, this is the sort of story which seems quite common you know they you know John Peel gives it a play that girl yeah. wow that's amazing then they get gigs around the country you know all these little indie nights that an alternative nights as they like to call them on a Monday or Tuesday you know you just get the band you go up north go down south west whatever and then you know the John Peel session with Dale Griffith or you know yeah we that's <laughs> it we've been I've been there with my twice it's you know and all that yes. and then you know the first album everyone's really excited and it's all going terribly well and then the sort of second album where there's been a lack of money you know people are getting really fed up and then you know it's like actually we're not really enjoying each other's company anymore and that lack of money is definitely a, a, a kind of an issue so what so with the so how did the yachts because you sort of split up at kind of 81 so that was during that sort of post-punk period wasn't it where you were yeah i mean it's funny it's similar your story there was was going along exactly <laughs> the lines the second album not doing it but it wasn't necessarily lack of money because with the first album had done really well in the states it hadn't done great we hadn't you know we had like I think eight singles out and not one of them had got anywhere near the charts or even got radio play. But in the States, suddenly we were the third most added on record once on Billboard. You know, I think there was Bob Dylan saved and I forget who's number two, Pointer Sisters. And then it was Yachts. And I, mm. I was 21 thinking, wow, here we go. This, oh, that was it. Oh, yeah. And the other thing with a lot of bands, you know, when they get that kind of they're doing the business and then they do the American bit of touring. And that's the other bit of the conversation where they go, we did America and we came back and split up because it's like America kind of destroyed them. And most people go, yeah, that just, I would say 90% of people who tour America band wise come back to it and say, and, that's, and then the band split up. So you obviously didn't have that experience. No, well, ours is exactly the opposite. We went to America. <clears throat> I've got a book here. Hang on, I know it's here because somebody asked about it the other day, called The, the Catalogue of Cool. And um, <laughs> I'm in here. Well, yachts are in here, and by inference, I'm in here. And I can't find. Typically, I can't find it. But anyway, it's it's in the music section, and um, uh, so it is. Catalogue of Cool from about 97 and uh, 1980, I think that by Gene Scolati, and um, he he loves the fact. So if you go to the, the, towards the end of the alphabet, there's yachts there. Before us is uh, Tom Waits. The Velvet Underground, uh, as it's got Walker, the Velvetettes, and there's all these cool people. And then in between, it, it's us. So it just shows there was none of that you know, sn snobbish uh, NME thinking, oh, they're, they're obvious. And they they called it Cole Porter Punk. And it says it's some, something like effortlessly tosses in words like suffice and tantamount into, into, you know, so they got the fact that this love of language. And so we went over there to the 40, to, 40 day tour and we we're on a bus and, you know, sleeping on the bus. And it was just up the, up the East Coast, across the top into Canada, came down. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. I mean, most of the dates were on our own. We did a few with uh, Joe Jackson, as I said before, and uh, I think we might have done a couple with Costello. But, but generally, it was just us playing tiny little, you know, little, like the borderline yes. type places, you know. Uh, so we came back going, wow, and came back to England and, oh, right, yeah, I forget, we're, we're back in Britain where they don't really get us. We, you know, we're not cool and that. Yes. And, eight, and sort of 79 Thatcher comes in, the early 80s, there's the sort of a lot of unemployment, a lot of people sort of, 
yeah, just kind of automatically going on the dole. You know, we had the Falkland War, then, you know, a lot of people, especially who were forming bands, you know, why the claim of the dole on enterprise allowance, job seekers allowance, and all those. Yeah. So obviously you were, you were happily sort of feeling good about life rather than just feeling miserable. So that what happens in kind of 81 then when, when the band decides to, to play it? Well, we, so we, we got, after the second album not doing so well, um, I think the record company, I think Radar here and Polydor in America really thought, wow, you know, the first one has done the groundwork. This is going to do well. I remember, I think some of the tour was cancelled and it was one of those, it was like, you know, it was character forming stuff, as they said, as they say, you know, because it's just like, ah, this is real life. Yes, it's not all a bowl of cherries. So we came back after that and I think, yeah, Radar, we were dropped by Radar. And, um, but luckily Andrew Lauder, who signed us to Radar, who got such an amazing catalogue of things he signed, like Buzzcocks, Stranglers, Noi, La Dusseldorf, you know, Can, all those UA acts, all the German, and he's got amazing taste and, and very influential for me for some of the things. He'd make me up tapes and I'd go, wow, what's this? You know, what am I listening to? So he stuck with us and he was at Demon Records. So we did the last Yachts single was on Demon. Uh, but I think the writing was on the wall. It's funny you said you said that people come back and it it, it, it was it's the money you know, when they come back from America and they're all, for us, I think it was more like, it just wasn't exciting. I mean, there was the money because we'd been dropped, but it wasn't that. I mean, we were prepared to carry on. We luckily, we still had a bit of a live name. So we, we carried on, you know, playing gigs and stuff. Um, but it was more that I came back and I, it's a material, this band that had been a sort of a, a hobby band for me, as well as, you know, when I was in yachts, I'd come back, and again, it was we were like picking these sort of nuggets type pop garage psych type songs and just doing it for fun in little bars in Liverpool. Yeah, uh, we, we hardly ventured out of Liverpool, and we were just doing we don't we uh, yeah we just we put put one single out. It was just I say it was just for fun. But then I remember coming back from America this, that last of the second tour, and there was t we went in the studio, and um, in the meantime, John and John, John Campbell and John Whitehead had come up with this idea for this song, A Gigantic Raft in the Philippines, which is a classic title and it's a great song. And we just went in and recorded it and I went, wow, this is this is more exciting than than what I'm, you know, it, it was um, more exciting than what we were doing in yachts. So I think we'd come to a natural end. Yes. Yeah. So did the band... You don't want to flog a dead horse. Sorry? You agree, did you all agree with that or did it... No. Um... <clears throat> Sorry, when I said we split up, I left. So I just thought it was more fun to be in It's a Material. So I announced I was leaving. And uh, I, I think there might have been a bit of ill feeling, but you can't make someone stay in a band if they don't want to be in it. And I suppose I was doing probably 60% of the writing. Um, so, yeah, it, the, the band, you know, it, it, split, it basically split up after that. We did announce... There is something, I think there is something in there. Uh, we, we made up this funny thing that the, the bass player had gone to Nepal to join a Trappist monk. Rather than the usual musical differences, we made up some piss take in the press, which got reported uh, widely, which is good. Well, that was very much what the band was about. Let's let's not do the stereotypical. Let's, let's make up some funny 
thing you know, as people go is that true or not so yeah then i joined it's material which uh as i say was just seemed more exciting i know <laughs> what was it like joining a band that was already did you feel like I mean, I'm always kind of curious about band dynamics, really, sort of who owns the sort of the, the kind of the major, the major say, because I can see when you had bands like Motorhead, you know, the original lineup, there must have been a bit of an issue of like, well, we're all equal members, the same with police. Then when Motorhead, you know, over the years, it's very much like Lemmy and the other two. But the initial one was Fast Eddie, Taylor, uh, Filthy Taylor and Lemmy, you know, and I could see the tension. Plus, they were younger. But, you know, yeah. The, who's who is motorhead you know and they all like well i am so did that <laughs> a bit strange when with it's immaterial that you you couldn't sort of go and write guys this is what we're doing because it's like their band they've already yeah it's and that's yeah you know what i tell you what david we're delving on really interesting things now that <clears throat> haven't really come up but um if you were asking really good questions or bring up good hypotheses yes it's very interesting because so in yacht i was as I said, I wrote 60%, possibly more of the songs, and it was definitely my band. And with early It's a Material, you can tell the influence because it was still my trash pop psych stuff that was, was that we were doing. You know, we were doing that. And um, we weren't writing our own stuff. So I think the first ever song that It's a Material wrote, what well, the, the, the band John and John wrote, was uh, Gigantic Raft in the Philippines, which suddenly was getting i mean we went and did it in a, an afternoon but it's just got a real vibrancy about it and uh and suddenly it was getting people like you know was it woo gary davis and peter powell were playing on radio one you know it was like what's going on here what's going on here and it came on a little well it came on on uh pete fullwell who was at eric's who had the original eric's label it came out on his label and yeah it started getting bits of airplay or something but it, yes you can definitely see the move from when i take my <laughs> i take my hands off the reins and suddenly it becomes good <laughs> and so i'm not part of the writing team anymore i must admit i thought i was and then i think we did a peel session with dale griffin as you said and i noticed that my name wasn't in the brackets so it was the sort of but it was for me i i just I suppose in a way, maybe go, okay, uh, I'll be in, I'm in the band, but it's not going to stop me do other things. So I was doing bits of film music with uh, my friend, Mark Herman, who would go on to do uh, Brast Off and Boy in the Striped Pajamas. He directed those. And so, but he, he, I was doing music for him because I've known him since I was seven. So I was doing bits of that. And I was thinking, well, I, you know, I will do as well as being in the band. I, I want to compose, but my, you know, I'm not getting stuff. Uh, I'm not being invited to write with the band, and that was fine by me. That was I was I, I likened myself to the sort of the Brian Jones of the band. Right. So right, we need some marimba. Okay, Hen can play. We need some sax. I can play sax. We need some uh, clarinet. I can play. You know, so I can play a, a few bits of everything. And and I'm, I'm I'd like to think I know how what a hook is and come up with a hook. So so I wasn't there wasn't any angst from my point of view or anger or jealousy. I just said, okay, that's the way it is. Hey, I'm happy being in this band. I'm with my mates. But yes, um, yes. I, I was also planning, I suppose, not my escape. That sounds wrong. But for instance, when I met this Christians, the Brothers Christian um, in 1985, I think, 84, 5, to, I was working in the studio because I was also 
doing that. That's basically that's a doing a job of being a studio engineer at, at Pete Fulwell and Pete Wiley's studio. So I I was sort of I was rubbish at it, but I was good at sort of bluffing. So people would go, yeah, you know, I don't. I, I heard that if you took if you took the uh, Dolby off the drums, it made them sound really good and really, you know, crunchy. So I did that, and then I forgot to put them back on when the rest of And so they'd go, can we have a listen to that? And i go, shit, I fucked up here. Uh, no, no, I'm, and, and I learned that whole thing of pressing the button. No, no, I think you can do it better. I think you can do it better. And it was all bluffs. It was, I've, I've, learned, I've bluffed my whole bloody life. I really have, and I'm not kidding you. I know four chords. And um, and I've got a great record collection, and that's where I've got all my ideas for songs. So I was uh, to get back to the story. So I do digress a lot, as you'll gather. Um, uh, the the brothers Christian came in came in to sing. There were five of them, and they came in to sing on um, a song called Ed's Funky Diner, which became a single for for its material. And I was actually the only one in the studio, and I said, "Well, I'll record the backing vocals." And it was five brothers, um, Gary, Russell, Roger, Mark, and Vic. And at the end of the day, I said, do you want to have a listen to some of my songs? And two of them had to go and play a game of tennis. So it became three. Three of the, uh, the brothers, Christian, came in and joined me. And then we just started working on on, on, on my songs, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the song to, to, to sort of, you know, Bring it full. So that's 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 how I dealt with not being on in the brackets, yes. as they say. Yeah. As long as your name's in the brackets, you know. Well, mine weren't, so I thought I needed I needed to get my names back in the brackets somehow. Because because um, John Peel would play any play most things from Liverpool, didn't he? At that stage, he was so yes. popular with Liverpool that most people yeah, would be in and a session. And and I sort of came across that I don't know if you've seen it. Cherry Red Records had recently put out a five CD box set of you know bands from Liverpool they put a seven CD box set for uh, Manchester so um that's quite a, that's quite in, in, in that sort you of mean, do you mean um you, do you mean this one yes yeah. <laughs> but did you I mean just just briefly because Liverpool at that time you had bands like you had the wild swans you had the the lotus eaters you got to remember and Manchester was sort of getting the birth of the, the, the Smiths and, and, you know, this incredible amount of energy coming from, you know, just that part of the country, you know, whereas based in Norwich, you know, we, we'd had the Farmers Boys, the Hicks and Serious Drinking, not a lot going on, really, as you can imagine. Yeah. But, you know, there must have felt like quite a scene going in there because cause I, rem- I do remember John Peel's sort of announced with It's Immaterial, the album, you know, life is hard and then you die and sort of thinking that is so 80s and then hearing you know a bit like the Triffids doing the wide open road you did um the famous song driving away from home so yeah songs like that when you you know hear John Peel play them immediately make you think god that's just incredible you know (laughs) it was I mean it was very vibrant the whole sort of scene and so much of it comes from Eric's. That was the birthplace of almost all, all those bands you've mentioned. You know, they were all at Eric's in the audience. And you, you can't stress how important that band was, uh, that, that, uh, that club was, and you know, the, the likes of Roger Eagle, who, who's the, the man behind it, you know, incredible. And can you remember the recording, you know, the, the track, Driving Away From Home? Well, I wasn't by then. I wasn't in, I was a sort of session man. 
because they so yeah I we'd been they'd signed to because um, initially we were on Warner's and we did a, a re-recording of um, Gigantic Raft and we were on Whistle Test with uh, it's on YouTube somewhere uh, with with uh, you know Mark Allen and David Hepworth and uh, and then we got dropped by them and then I joined uh, I was in the Mighty War. Do you remember, you know, Pete, Pete Wiley. So I was in, I was in their touring band. So we toured, and I, I was again helping Pete because he was, I was in his studio, uh, engineering. So I did a lot of the engineering for the demos for his uh, Sinful album. Is it, was there an album called Sinful? Whatever, around Sinful time, yes. basically. Uh, so with it's a material, I, 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 I mimed on top of the pops to it to the harmonica, but I, you know, I didn't actually play on it. Yes, my God. So you were jumping because Pete Wiley during the eighties was was a bit like um, Echo and the Bunnymen, Ian McCulloch. I mean, he was a bit of a godlike figure, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he was. I mean, <laughs> these were, he, and he was he, he was everywhere. You know what I mean? He was in the press every week, wasn't he? Yes, the story. wasn't he? Didn't he win Ligger of the Year? I think didn't he? Something like that. So yeah. how are you? I mean, it's quite interesting. Your obsession. I mean, because it reminds me of a documentary. You might have seen it on Jimmy Iovine. You know, who was. Uh, did you ever see? Yeah. That? No, I've not seen it. No. It's on probably Netflix. It's about yeah. Beats, you know the Beats kind of headphones and Apple Music and stuff like that. This guy, right. this young guy who sort of one up one day his life you know he's very young and then he gets asked if he wants to be in the studio at week the weekend and it happens to be John Lennon and he's sort of like that's his light bulb moment and he's not going to let that moment ever go and he sort of continues his incredible you know world of working with all these bands so were you also did you have that kind of hunger and hustle to to uh stick with the music world because obviously most people you know have that period of music and then they go god that I'm gonna go now and get a job or you know do something quite different but you're obviously jumping from ship to ship quite quickly yeah there's there's nothing else I can do and nothing else I want to do so I had to do that and uh as I say I, I was working in this studio Benson Street so that was my sort of day job so that kept the wolf from the door and uh, and I was all learning my craft as well there I was learning how to produce and how to engineer so I could do my own stuff which has been so you know um useful the fact that i could even the christians i was able to i i recorded the demos that got us the deal on a little porter studio you know um so yes i am i've, I've been hungry since i was eight i suppose i thought yeah. this is what i want to do when i first heard the you know the kinks and the stones and the beatles and so with the 80s i mean it was all very exciting and political wasn't it let's face it we yeah. had we had the we had the sort of mainstream charts with that trevor horn production sound and you know big hair, big shoulder pads, lots of balloons on top of the pops and everyone having a great time. Then the kids <laughs> like us or me, you know, listen to the Smiths, to June Brides, Go-Betweens, getting very angsty on, you know, the Triffids albums and loving, you know, like life is hard and then you die. We thought, yeah, we'll just like that just because of the title. Um, so, you know, the Socialist Workers' Party or somebody called them the Socialist Something Party, which I never heard before, but it was quite funny beginning with W. Um, you know, there was a there was a real lefty quality, and and obviously in Liverpool at that stage, uh, that period, decade, you know, you were you know often in the news, wasn't it, the city, and Michael Heseltine and Margaret Thatcher. So yeah, like politically, and and sort of also, how did that influence a lot of the bands at the time? Because a lot of people were getting quite idealistic about the sort of socialism, weren't they? 
Well, I, well ironically, it was when I joined my uh, when I joined the Christians that we were dealing with those things like Forgotten Town. That's what it was about. You know, I'm from Hull, but I moved to Liverpool, and initially that was called because the chorus goes, "One of the troubles of living in Forgotten Town." Initially, it was titled "One of the troubles of living in a Northern Town," and so. I suppose I, I was started doing political stuff with the Christians, albeit with a, a sheen of, you know, the most beautiful. Gary Christian has a wonderful voice and he's got these lovely harmonies. Um, but that's what we were sort of, you know, singing about social matters. It's funny, I did that uh, because now I, I play just as a uh, basically solo. I'll do solo albums and I play, go out with a guitarist and it's really stripped back. and I love it. I'm having the most fun I've ever had. And... Um, and I, 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 when I first started, so my first album, solo album came out in 2008 on Stiff Records, ironically. And um, I, I was just, it was then, it was like, so right, you're going to have to play live. And I went, what? I, I can't play live. I can't sing. I'm a keyboard player. I can't, you know, and keyboard players look crap when they're, when they're singing live. So anyway, I, I took up the guitar. Well, I mean, I've always played guitar, but I, I learned how to carry it off and, and the gap in between and all this, and I ended up really enjoying it. But I was playing, uh, I was in the kitchen playing Ideal World, the song which the Christians, a hit single for the Christians. And I, I played it, my wife went, well, I've not, I've not really listened to the lyric. That's that's a sort of, that's a, that's a protest song, isn't it? I was, yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. But in, in a way, there was so, so much, um, you know, it was glossy and it was 80s production and it was beautiful harmonies that possibly it washed over your head, you know what I mean? Yes, so now, yes. now I'm, I'm, yes, it's back to just me and a guitar and a, you know, maybe a, a couple of other instruments. A protest. Uh, yeah. Got it. <laughs> but yeah, so, so the other thing, I mean, on, on the music front, because I've sort of put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths, that, that, that sort of glorious period, the C86 world. Most yes. Split up kind of sort of after that period, you know, like, you know, they'd done their thing, you know, Bogshed, Stun, Big Flame, you know, the, the Wolfhounds, you know, they were all struggling on their next album. But the other thing that comes along around that time is ecstasy, and that kind of suddenly changes the musical landscape or people's brains. So suddenly yeah. the world doesn't really want indie pop anymore. We'd had the Smiths, that was beautiful, the, and you know, the go-betweens, the Triffids, etc. And then suddenly it's like, you know, the Soup Dragons, the Happy Mondays, Primal Screams, Stone Roses, it's suddenly like everyone wants to, you know, the 16, 18 year old is different in the late 80s to the one at the beginning of the 80s who are all yeah. employed. So how did you kind of cope as well as an, being an artist, thinking, oh crap, this is a complete, you know, the kids are, you know, like when you go to Glastonbury, I remember people going, God, the kids are looking so young. It's like, no, they're always 16 or 18. We're just getting older. Yeah, like, exactly. So well, imagine, so when I started the Christians, I was 32. You know, now you would be, come on, come on, son, hop, hop it. Come on, granddad, hop it. <laughs> you know, so I suppose in a way, possibly, I, I don't know whether I'm one of the older people you've interviewed, but I, I don't quite fit into that. None of the bands I've played in quite fit into that C86 world. So I, I feel I'm slightly an interloper into this, but I'm enjoying it no end and hopefully giving good answers. But yeah, so I was a little bit older. And uh, I suppose, as you're saying before, I had that drive. I had that passion. I, I knew I had songs in me 
and I, I just wanted to get them out, you know, somehow. It's funny because when I was when I was um, in its material and getting getting a sort of a you know a load of songs together, which would end up being on the first Christians album. I remember um, Janice Long used to do a, a Radio Merseyside show, and there was once we were in the um, what was it? the Columbia, which was the hotel in London that all the bands stayed at. All the I remember, you know, yeah, and even even Noddy Holder would be there in the bar at the end, you know, at the end of the night. There'd be Simple Minds, there'd be oh, all all sorts of people were there, and um, Janice Long was there, and I said, I've got all these songs, Janice, you know, and he said, uh, she said, well, there's that. Um, there's that Wayne Hussey chap, which is before he joined, um, I think he'd been in a band he'd called Happy for Dubs. But he'd been in Sisters of Mercy, hadn't he? And then he was... Well, I don't think at this time, had he, when, when he was in Sisters of Mercy, what year would that be? That was quite early, because he... He's oh, was just, it? He's just written the book, and it's like, it only goes up to him at the end of the Sisters of Mercy. So I think, you've got another book, haven't you, Wayne? Because obviously, you know, you haven't even touched your, your sort of... Where you've <laughs> well, been there. Maybe maybe I've got the dates wrong there, but it, so we'd be talking. I suppose we no, I suppose not, because we'd be talking eighty four, eighty five. Was he in Sisters of Mercy then? So he probably was kind of. He probably was coming at the end of Sisters of Mercy, actually. Ah, right, okay. Well, maybe that's maybe that's why Janice. So she, anyway, so she suggested him, and you laugh at the next one because she said, "Well, there's that ginger lad from the Frantic Elevators." And I went, oh, what? You mean Mick Hucknell? Because he used to play down Adams Club, which is a club every every Sunday with Frantic Elevators, who are amazing. So it, it could have all been so different. So, yeah, I was looking for singers, basically. Yes, blimey. So look, then, as, so what happens at the end of the Christian period, the Christians? Um, so Christians lasted, we, I said the first album was mega. Second album was, wasn't so mega hit, but it was huge out in Europe and number one in France and stuff. Um, third album, a bit like what happened with Yachts, you know, it's like didn't go quite as everybody expected. They all thought it would go like that and it didn't. Maybe it wasn't quite such a strong album song-wise. And then the record company lost interest in about, well, they sub- we suddenly heard they wanted to release the greatest hits and you go, hang on, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a bit early? Or is this, a, a, you know, a, a precursor to a, you giving us the boot? And indeed it was. So Best Of came out. Um, and then Gary Christian, the singer, left to do a solo album. He, went, he moved to France to do a solo album. So uh, by necessity, I was, I was left with Russell, his brother, and we worked, we signed to another label because they were aware that I was the main songwriter. And they said, oh, you'll find another singer. And their idea was to call it The Christians 2 or something. And I went, no way we're going to... Actually, nothing came out of that. We were, you know, we did demos for two years and it was never quite right. That that old that old chestnut, we can't hear a single here. We can't hear the first single. Right. And in the meantime, I was doing bits and pieces of production. I was doing Wildlife on One soundtracks and Natural World and music for adverts. So again, uh, I suppose getting back to what you were talking about before, I just, I, I'm always working. I'm a hustler. I will always somehow, you know, make it work for me. And um, and then the Christians reformed in 2000 and we just sort of did our own album on it and we toured for a few years and it was making a nice living. You know, this, uh, we could play 300, 500 seaters. So it was mainly about, about playing live. Um, Meantime, I was doing bits of production. I produced an album for Mark Owen. I was writing with 
so two you know so, so two things that happen which always are a bit of a I always remember um, was it Robert Plant he said that uh, when John Bonham died and then Led Zeppelin broke up he said that that was the end of innocence you know it was like suddenly his kind of life just totally changed because he didn't know what he was going to do next and had to sort of find himself self again and so you with with the Christians because one of the members Roger dies doesn't he which is always a bit of a shocker when you know someone dies when you're young well he but, but he hadn't been in the band for um well, probably about well, I'm trying to think when he died when it was about 90s he probably hadn't been in the band for eight years because he left after the second single right. basically so he's not on the he's on He's singing some bits on the first album, but he's not really on the first. But yes, it was a shocker when he died. You know, still, um, even though the, you say that there wasn't much contact between him and, and Gary and Russell, his brothers, but we, you know, everyone was shocked by that. It's always a bit weird though when you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because now we just you don't get used to it, but you just think, oh yes, people start dropping, which is always a bit shocking. But you kind of yeah. that you're a bit older than that. So look, Mark, Mark Owen, because because I can remember <laughs> that single coming out or that album coming out, but I might be wrong because he did a few, didn't he? So you did. Yeah, this, this was this was um, I think he'd done one album, and then so we're talking 1999, um, and. He was looking to do this. He wanted to do. He 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 loves loved and still loves. I imagine Radiohead, um, you know, Talk Talk, and so that's so that's the album we were trying to make, which is great because I love Talk Talk, absolutely love them to bits. And so we were trying to make this beautiful album. Uh, so it's myself, Richard Norris, not the one from the Grid, but Richard Norris, the engineer. We were producing it, and we spent a year uh, in Mark's house. Uh, where he got this amazing gear set up in in the Lake District, it was it was wonderful. Um, trouble was there was no sort of end to it because just we think right, well, right that's it. And you go, I've got this new song, and we were I think we were we were we weren't paid by the day. We were paid by the you know. So we're like right, I think I worked out I'd have made more as a cleaner if I'd uh, <laughs> than being the producer. And then of course we finished this album. It's mixed. It sounds sounds great. He goes on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. He wins it. And I have people going up, wow, you are, you're sorted, Hen, you're away, you are. And then the next thing I hear, he's ditching the whole album. Um, and I think he kept a couple of tracks. Uh, There's a track that I produced called Four Minute Warning, which was a top three hit. But all the all the other ones, I think almost all the other ones were, were jettisoned. I think it was because he wanted a new publishing deal. So that was all part of the old one. So... You know that that was another one which was a little a little bit of a, a, a punch in the gut but you go okay dust yourself down something else will come around yes because i because uh, the album i can remember was his first one which was the green man that child yes was it child and green man yeah this was um what was this one called in your time in your yes own time. in your own time so i got a couple of tracks on there and there was a, the the, uh, the big hit four minute warning but um Yes, it, it, it sort of uh, it didn't, yeah, didn't do much. Blimey, I have to say, I've just seen the tr- the, the list of musicians he's put on there. It's phenomenal. <laughs> wow, he's literally just got everybody. Yes. Yeah, because there's, there's the members of Pretenders, there's members of Jamiroquai, there's Robbie Williams drummer, there's Jed Lynch, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's everybody. And a lot of them were people either I knew or... Um, 
Richard Norris knew. Jed Lynch, we ironically, we turned down. I mean, he would go on to play with. Well, he's playing with John Grant now. Uh, no, sorry, that's Budgie's playing with. Who's Jed? Jed playing with? Can't remember who's, but he lives quite near me now. And we turned him down for the Christians when he was about eighteen or nineteen. And you know, then ten years later, he's this worst world class. Uh, drummer playing with Peter Gabriel, you know, and been giving his own spot at the end where they all walk off stage and he, he's left there with the drum, with the lights doing this. So, uh, yes, we had a laugh about that. And I said, Jed, can you forgive me for, <laughs> <laughs> for not choosing you to be in the Christian? And we'd have had such a laugh too with him. But anyway, never mind. You can't win them all. So then after, you know, because it's then in the last decade that it's been your, mostly your solo work, but also soundtracks. Yeah, uh, most I suppose mostly my solo work and bits of writing for other people, uh, but generally I I have ended up with um, I say the happiest and most creative part of my life. I I just uh, love doing what I'm doing. I've got th three solo albums out. Uh, I can go and play little folk clubs, little art centres, um, loads of house gigs. I did about thirty-five house gigs last year. Unfortunately, this year. As you can imagine, they're being cancelled right, left, right. I don't know when I'll gig again, but um, uh, I get my pension next year. So if I can hang on till there. So when did you, uh, when did, as an artist, when did you sort of have that moment where you could think, this is, this is what my life is? Because not, not many people, you know, like I, was, I mentioned Lemmy and David Bowie, they just had one idea, didn't they? And you went, blimey. But most people don't do that. I mean, I know there was the obvious people, but an awful lot sort of duck and die. But you've stuck with it all the time. And I just wondered if, if you ever suddenly went, God, this is really what I'm going to do to the end. Uh, yeah, I think it is what I'm going to do to the end. I mean, what I haven't done is I've not stuck in any... So people go, what? Yachts were like, you know, new wave pop. And then you went to the Christians, which was super produced, you know, um, very smooth soul. And then, you you know, its material in between was was uh, sort of quite indie-ish. Uh, and then now I'm doing, I suppose, a slightly singer-songwriter folky, you know. So I just, I just, um, I'm hard to pin down. But for me, for me, I suppose it's all about the songs. So that, you know, I'm now... Uh, I'm doing these things every every weekend. Well, I've, I've been doing during lockdown. Every week on or every other weekend, I do a session from my shed. I do these shed sessions. I do it every Saturday at three p.m. and um, and I've been revisiting my my uh, back catalogue. So I did that song I talked of earlier. Suffice to say, and uh, you know when I first went back in yachts time, it was really fast and i just slowed it really slowed it down played it on acoustic guitar and I had a few other people sending their iphone videos we did a little you, know, you can imagine here someone i was up there guitarist was there there's a cajon player there there's a fiddle player there. and people just thought it just uh, some some of this american chap who interviewed me the other day just said i love what you've done with it you've totally reinvented it and whereas the opening line was i'm just a young romantic fool now it's just, I'm just an old romantic fool. And I'm still singing it, singing it to the same girl I sang it to in 1977, which gives it a bit of, you know, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Very similitude or poignancy or whatever. But yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm loving it. Loving it yes. at the moment. It's, it's, it's very uncertain times at the moment, but uh, I can still put out albums. I can still do Zoom gigs. We did a first Zoom gig last week. And... Um, 
It was hilarious. It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I can still, I can still write a song. You know, I've been throwing myself into writing songs for my next album. I've been writing a musical last year about set, set in a, a Leeds care home with John Beck, who's uh, wrote "Put Your Records On" for Corin Bailey Ray. So you're on. I think he won a Grammy for that. Mm. So I've always got, there's always something uh, that, yeah. And I, I thought when he rang me last year and said, do you want to help me? He said, Henry, you do, um, you do ribald and poignancy. I said, yeah. He said, right, well, we need that. Cause some of the, it's very, it's all, it's, it's based on, it's based on his dad basically being put in the care home and the tribulations he goes and finally getting out of there and coming home. So this is a feel good factors, but some of the, it's 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 very sad, very sad. Some of it, but some of it's really uplifting. So that's what that's what I spent a lot of last year doing was was uh, coming up with this musical, which of course now we were hoping would be, um, you know, we might be trying to get the actors and things sorted out. Literally today, I've got the email from John saying, right, should we try and start thinking about when we might be able to put this together? But um, in the meantime, I'll probably put an album out of it. Yes, because <laughs> five years ago you did the the title song for the West. West End musical Dreamboats and Petticoats as well. So you, you're obviously able to um, sort of morph into different types. I mean, well, that's exactly what, as, as I said before, you know, I've never had that thing of, you know, I'm not doing it. So that was, they wanted a song um, that sounded like the early 60s. So I am, um, okay, okay. So, you know, I, I know all this stuff. I mean, my, I just, you know, I, I, one of the, I say one of the first records I got was Johnny and the Hurricanes. So I'm aware of that. Late late fifties, early sixties stuff, and, and a lot of it's the same chords. You know, they tell Laura I love her. You know, uh, they're all sort of what is it? C E minor, C A minor, F G. I think yes. off the top of my head, they're all they're all that. And we don't don't know whether we actually use that chord sequence, but we I used all the sort of twangy guitar, and I came up with this riff. And it was a joy for me because on the actual record, Hank Marvin plays my riff. How cool is that? You know, so yeah, <laughs> he plays it. And I'm going, wait, I wrote that. So it's the most uncool record. It took us three quarters of an hour to write that. Um, I wrote it with a friend, Ian, and he got uh, Jason Donovan in. To, to help with. So I remember doing writing the second verse with Jen, Jason Donovan over the phone. I was in Cardiff and I was ringing him. I said, have you got any ideas for the second verse? He said, what have I done? I went, oh, yeah, that's sounds... So it was just, it, it was a doddle to write. So, yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not your artist. I am your journeyman, basically. I, I'm a journeyman songwriter and I'm gone for hire. And, um, you know, if you want to heavy metal song i can do a heavy metal song if you you know i've done heavy metal songs where we've had to do adverts where right we want it to sound like such and so we want to sound like this 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 okay okay you know so i can do all that so i'm not i'm not your proper artist <laughs> i'm a show but it's interesting because I was watching your um and listen to your solo um work and there was a sort of the amazing videos you've done with them as well in the cafe um it was all beautiful and black and white and it reminded me because i did an interview with the ex-lead singer of crass steve ignorant and he's done a right. solo album which is all about aging and and sort of a beautiful video and i just thought god it looks very very similar kind of you're coming from very similar places so obviously the the you know the the generation who are now in their 60s 
are yeah. dealing with the all the same things. So it's, it's kind of, I suppose, I find it kind of interesting just seeing these kind of. Oh yes, that's well, for this. What's interesting is that when I did my first solo on Chronicles of Modern Life, the first song we wrote was called Old. And it was, uh, I say, this chap Ian came up to my place and uh, we were just talking and we had this line, I'm the same age that my father was when I first thought he was old. And that was it. And we were away then. So we just, I just, I was only 53 then, but I was still was feeling, you know, I couldn't run for buses like I used to be able to. There's all this, I mean, there's, uh, I tried to run a mile today. I maybe should have walked. My head had the ambition, but my body was all talk. And so it was just like, <laughs> there's sort of, right, you know, um, what's it? Um, kid, uh, please, please, oh, that's this. I tried to waltz you around the room like some lovesick fool, but the kid said, please don't shame us, Dad. You're dancing so uncool. So I was just writing, we were just writing, you know, little ride, little stories and about being a certain age. There's one about when the... Uh, the daughter brings uh, a boyfriend back for the first time and the song's called he ain't good enough for you so it's all about so i suddenly tapped into a load of people who were just going i mean luckily the first single i think was uh, one of the first singles called grace the new blonde and that started getting played on terry wogan you know and steve wright and i'm going what and it's on a tiny little label it's on stiff and i'm going what so i was getting you know c-listed uh, with these songs that weren't meant to be well for for 10 years before that i've been trying to write hits probably for 20 years i've been trying to write hits 30 years even and then suddenly when you try not to write a hit or thinking there's no way this is going to get on the radio let's just write about my own life you suddenly think hang on maybe that's what i was doing wrong all the time i should have mm -hmm. just been writing about my life but that's what i that's what i'm doing now is and it's i think that's what's so um so artistically pleasing and that's all I'm doing is just coming up with these tunes about about where I am now you know what I mean yes so look just last question I mean if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out I just wondered what little bit of advice that you would have whispered in their ear just as they were about to go on stage or go in the recording studio or just about to think actually I've just started a new band and you think oh I'll just give you a couple of just a few words but nothing more. I just wonder what that would be. Um, I suppose I'd say keep going, keep going. You know, it, I think the best is still yet to come. I think my best song is is still to come. So keep going. And even when I mean, you were saying how you know um, suddenly when the second album isn't picked up and you've split up the band and the heads go down. I think my thing has always been, oh come on, there's something around the corner. Uh, I'm very, I suppose I'm very optimistic. So and. Uh, yeah, for me, it's just keep going. Yeah. I mean, they say... I was going to say, you know, I mean, the person, my thankfully, my first single was David Bowie's Space Oddity and first album was Changes. And I sort of stuck yeah. with Bowie all my life. And obviously, you know, people going, when he died, because they knew I was a big fan, they said... And I was like, actually, he didn't... He did release a lot of dreadful things that I had to listen to because I loved David <laughs> Bowie. And there was a lot, even decades, which weren't that great either. But, you yeah. know, I found it interesting. But then, you know, towards the end, and he did Black Star, it's like, Jesus, that is such an amazing piece of work. I know, fantastic, absolutely fantastic, you know. Uh, yes, I mean, things like Tim Machine, or was it Earthling, didn't really... Heathen was great. Yes. I like Heathen. Yeah. yeah. And reality were amazing. And reality, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you can see there in the Bowie, Bowie section up there, it's got all the early ones. It's got, you know, it's even got the, the DRAM ones and it goes all the way up to, gets to, well... Um, Tonight, never let me down. 
yes. I, so I don't. I think I stopped before Let's Dance. Well, uh, you know, Ashes I, to I, Ashes. Yes, Ashes to Ashes. Yeah, that's it. it jumped for two decades. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is there. Yeah. <laughs> But then, you know, some days you just think, oh, they're only five quid, you know, perhaps I'll just buy them and have a listen. And it's like, you can sort of see that he was like, my God, with everything else around him, you know, it was quite interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And he obviously needs to go through that process to get, you know, um, yeah. you just think the amount of amazing stuff he left, it's like, hey, the odd, the, I suppose I've been the opposite, because I just think, I'm trying to think, Yachts did uh, two albums, Christians did three, and I've done three. You know, that's not much in forty years. I'm I I'm I'm lazy, and I'm also I don't release very much unless I think it's really good. So uh, that's why I've not released very. So hopefully, I'm, it's a it's it's unlike Bowie, where there's I'd like to think there's not much shit in there. Yeah, but, um, that's, that's but there's not much stuff in there either. You know, <laughs> for for forty years, forty three years to to have only nine albums or something like that isn't very it's not a good innings is it that's a bit harsh, <laughs> it's a bit harsh. no it's good it's all good look this has been fantastic well thanks oh so i've much. loved this david it's been the most in-depth conversation i mean it's probably of no interest to anybody else but i've enjoyed it oh, did yeah. you do this do you do it as a podcast visually or orally audio just right yeah but so you, when I when I jump up and pick up an album from behind me, they'll be going, "What the hell's going on here?" They'll they'll pick it. But it's interesting that there is. I I mean, it was one of those things I really enjoyed doing it and was putting it out there. And then I sort of realised that there are people because I can see, you know, who listens around the world, you know, because it's on various platforms, and you kind of realise over, you know, like people. I think it's interesting. I haven't even bored you with my thirty year the passing of time, the twenty five to thirty years, where suddenly people start looking back and actually this is really good stuff and that, that yeah. kind of period of the 80s that you know you live through it and then you get on with the rest of your life and then you sort of go back not just to sort of relive the good old days because you think mm, whatever but you listen and you think oh that album's good and this band who I missed the first time are good and that band you know and it's a bit like yeah. you know because there's loads of bands that I didn't get in the 80s because I just was like well you you know a you had the money thing like 399 so like, I'm not just going to buy it you can't stream it and you can't just you might be able to record it on a cassette, even though home music is killing music. <laughs> but, you know, you still didn't, you know, there was lots of bands that I didn't hear. And I've gone back and thought, this is really good, you know. But, yeah. you know, you, you've got your sort of, you know, your It's In Material album, you've got your Triffids album, The Smiths, you know, you've got enough indie pop, then you have the Bundy uh, Boys, and then you uh, have those kind of Public Enemy, and, the, you know, and it's like a big deal to kind of buy an album in those days, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I just went, I didn't, I didn't, you know. I'd listened to John Peel religiously with my TDKD 90 cassettes, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't just go and, you know, buy stuff. So it's an interesting thing looking back at that music. So that's my point. God, that was not at all concise, was it? But there are people <laughs> around the world who are sort of also kind of curious, like this person you were interviewed by, who, who think, God, you know, this band is really good. And this person, you know, and you kind of do this investigative stuff, don't you? Yes. Well, and I think that's what sadly we'll be missing now, because... A lot of the kids aren't, you know, they're not really interested. I went back, but I'm sure you did. You go and find, right, what, what turned the Smiths on? What I would do, what, what turned such and such? And you, and you go back and discover stuff. So, um, yeah, no, I, I say. Because, I, you know, because that was interesting because we didn't have to go back that far, did we? I sort of looked back. No. 
you just you were like you were virtually there i just had to go back one decade whereas the kids i mean i'm sure there will be those nerdy kids who want to go back to yes elvis and little richard but it's kind of interesting that you know when i was in 72 73 when i was starting to really get into music it's like god the beatles have only just broken up <laughs> that's a that's a weird thought you know the yes just broken up but they, yeah they, yeah they were really gone but they weren't you know I mean, no 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 exactly no i must have it's been i've really enjoyed this it's been fantastic yes, I anyway I'm... i must i must let you go but look thank no, you you're all right i've, I've loved it <laughs> yes it's been good it's been good can you give a plug to the can you give a plug to the yacht box set because I, I bought a load before before covid thinking i was going to do lots of gigging <laughs> stop with a load of boxes anyway give up if they go on my website they can check it out yes definitely well there you go and i indeed God, I edited myself out there. Anyway, look, that's the end of the interview. Well done, if you're still with it. Um, you deserve a medal. Anyway, look, that was me, David Eastall, in conversation with Henry Priestman from the Yachts, It's Immaterial, The Christians, and so much more. As he said, go to his website and find out more information. I'm sure if you Google Henry Priestman, it will all be there. Put musician as well. It always works that way. Anyway, I think he's also on Facebook. The dreaded. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Also, um, all these shows have been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So there, check it out. Look, that's it. I'm not going to um, babble anymore. Have a great week. Stay safe.